Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 1088. If you need a Bible, please feel free to take one as our gift to you. We're going to get to that passage here in a little bit. There's quite a bit of uh, material I want to get to to set it up, though. Uh, Man, first, I just want to thank the worship team. Uh, those are two of my favorite songs. And there's certain songs, I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's certain songs that kind of stick to your soul uh, because maybe you first heard them during a, a time in your life that God was just really working. And I, the first time I heard that second saw, song, uh, All We Have Is Christ, it was actually at a conference. We were just starting to think about Mercy Hill. I don't even think we had named the, the church yet. And went to this conference, and Bob Coughlin was the one that was singing it. I think they were just introducing the song, actually. And uh, I, I just remember God working in, the, in my heart in that moment, saying, look, you need to attempt something that if God's not in it, it is doomed to fail. And so Mercy, Mercy Hill has been born out of God working through songs like that. And so thank you guys. Uh, we are in the, the midst, this is our second week in a sermon series entitled How People Change, which is the title also of a book by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane that I would highly recommend you pick up. A lot of the insights from this sermon and, and this series are coming from this, this book. And essentially, the, the, this is the essence of the sermon series. We all want to change, but change is not easy. Change is difficult. Change is, is extremely hard for us, and so this sermon series really gets into the nuts and the bolts about how we change. What are the biblical principles that we can look at to figure out how can we change to be more like Christ? And so last week we talked about the reason, or at least one of the main reasons that we don't change is because we've got this gap in our gospel. That at church often we talk about the past, what God has done for us on the cross and the the grace that he's given us, and we talk about the future hope that we have to spend eternity with him, but often we fail to recognize the power of the gospel in our lives for the here and now. And so last week we dug into 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, which really describes that gap well and why that gap exists, but it also gives us hope that God can fill that gap and that he has given us everything we need. Because of his power, he has given us everything we need for real, lasting change. This week, I want to talk about the person that changes us. And I want to emphasize the word person there. Change does not simply come by learning some system or a list of principles True and lasting change, and if you're taking notes, I would write this down. True and lasting change takes place within a deep, personal relationship with Jesus. That metaphor of marriage, the metaphor of marriage is used to describe the relationship between us and God throughout the Bible. There's several metaphors in the Bible that describe our relationship. God is is a father to us. He's a shepherd to us, but he's also our husband. And so this is where we're going to be heading today. First, I want to talk about marriage in the ancient Jewish culture, because I think it's important for us to understand how they viewed marriage and the process of marriage, because when we 
get that, we'll understand the, the Bible passages that we're going to take a look at better. And then secondly, we're going to look at some key passages. Before we even get to Colossians 1, we're going to look at some key passages in Scripture that use that same marriage language. You heard one of them already in Hosea. And then after that, I want to dive into Colossians 1. And really, Colossians 1 is just an opportunity for us to gaze at the beauty and the glory of the one that we're betrothed to. And then finally, we're going to talk about how finding our identity in our relationship with Christ really impacts our everyday life. And so would you pray with me one more time before we dive in? Father, we come to you right now knowing that our hearts often are hard and prideful and independent and often our relationship with you does not look like a loving, intimate relationship. And because of that, we struggle with change. And so I plead with you that during this time as we open up your word, that your spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would be motivated by your spirit to look at our relationship with you as intimate, like a husband and a wife, and that, that our very identity would be wrapped around that and it would change us. That we, like Glenn said, that we would leave here better, more like you, better husbands and better wives, better students, better friends, that we would be a better family because of your spirit changing us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jewish marriage. We're going to start there. The process started in ancient Jewish culture with two fathers negotiating. And so remember back then, marriage was not just a, a decision between a couple. It was a family decision. It impacted two whole families. And so fathers would get together, they would negotiate. Uh, sometimes the, the girl was consulted, but usually that was just a formality. And one of the things that the fathers would negotiate is that the groom, or the, the father of the groom, would agree to give a, a dowry, or it was also called a ransom, to the, the other father, the, and Sometimes that dowry would be cash. Sometimes it would be uh, just in kind or, or service. Often the dowry was then passed down to the daughter as a wedding gift. But after the negotiation happened and that dowry was paid, there would be a betrothal ceremony. They, would actually, they had two ceremonies. Okay, they'd start with this betrothal ceremony where the new couple would actually legally become married but they would still live separately. They would live with their own family. And so it's kind of like engagement on steroids because the only way that you could dissolve that relationship after this formal ceremony was through a formal divorce. And so fidelity was expected through the betrothal period. That's why when Mary became pregnant with Jesus, 
They were betrothed. Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And what did Joseph do? He, he offered to secretly divorce uh, Mary uh, because if you were caught in adultery, even during the betrothal period, you could get stoned for that. And so this betrothal ceremony, it was customary for the groom to give a, the bride a, a betrothal gift. He did this to express his pledge. It acted as a, as a seal for his promise. It was a promise that said, look, I will return for you. And then the betrothal period would last at least a year, sometimes longer. And this time was spent not getting ready for a wedding ceremony, but preparing for a lifetime together. In fact, the husband would often go and build a house for them to live in. Or if their father's house was big enough, they would prepare a room inside of their their father's house for them to be able to to live together. Often they would use that time to learn about one another, the the new roles that they were going to have in this marriage. And then after the betrothal period, there would be a wedding ceremony and a huge celebration. It would often last a few days. And then they would finally, after that, live together and consummate the marriage. And so with that historical background, I want to take a look at a few passages in the Bible that use this marriage language. You see this metaphor all over the place. It's one of the most important metaphors in the Bible to describe our relationship with God. And so you saw... Hosea earlier, Isaiah 54, 5 is another example, very explicit. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. I could point out several other similar passages that point to this relationship with God is, is to be intimate, like a marriage relationship. In the Old Testament, think about it. How many times does God talk about making a covenant with his people? That covenant language, we use that. In a wedding, right? When you get married, you don't sign a contract between you and your spouse. You you seal a covenant. There's a difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is uh, just between two people that are giving and receiving some kind of service. There's not necessarily a whole lot of relationship that's necessary. I mean, I've got a a contract with Sprint. I don't have much of a relationship with them. They look at me as a number, right? But in a, contra- in a covenant, by nature, it's, a, it's relational. In a contract, if one side breaks their commitment, the other side is no longer obligated to keep their commitment. But in a, in a covenant, you are expected to fulfill your end of the agreement regardless of what the other party does. A contract is just signed. A covenant is it's sealed. In a contract... It can be done in secret. Nobody has to know about it. But in a covenant, there's always a public oath that is made because you're not just promising some service. You're promising yourself. You love that other person so much that you want the world to know about your commitment. And so that's why thousands of years after God made a covenant with Noah, we can still look up in the sky and see a rainbow and be reminded of God's love and commitment to us. And so we move to the New Testament, and the focus is more specifically on us being married to Christ. And so Ephesians 5, 32, Paul describes, uh, he's describing the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And then he says this, it's really interesting. In verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. 
And I'm saying that it actually refers to Christ and the church. And so the church is married to Christ, Paul says. He describes this relationship specifically between a husband and wife as the husband being willing to sacrifice everything for his wife, that he would be willing to give himself up for her, just as Christ loves the church. I mean, think about, talk about a dowry, okay? Uh, Jesus himself, he gave himself as a payment for you. Uh, we, we see this in a couple passages. Um, uh, in Revelation chapter 5, this is what they're worshiping. The, the heavenly beings are worshiping. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, talking to, about Jesus. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus said, I, I came to not be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. So Jesus paid the ultimate ransom, the ultimate dowry to purchase you for him. And then again in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3, Paul uses marriage as a metaphor to describe the relationship with Christ. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Can we sing about that? I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as, a, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so currently Paul is saying that, look, right now in this time, we're in the betrothal period with Christ. We are expected to be faithful as we are being prepared for the wedding day. James echoes that same thought, James 4, 4 and 5. You adulterous people, he says. It's interesting he uses that word there. It's a, it's a, it's a marriage word. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it, it is to no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns, God yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. And so like a husband who is jealous for us, God does not tolerate His people committing adultery against Him. Now, during this betrothal period, Jesus has made a pretty amazing promise that he will one day return. And what is he doing right now? John 14, 1 through 3. Let your hearts not be troubled. He's talking to his disciples right before his crucifixion, telling him, look, I'm going away. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so right now, that's the betrothal promise, that he is gone, he is preparing a place for us. And he has sealed this, he's given us a betrothal gift. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? As a guarantee. And so he has given us his spirit as a guarantee that, look, I am coming back. And so he, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. And so how does the Holy Spirit help us? If you've been following 
our catechism. That's the question for this week. How does the Holy Spirit help us? He helps us by helping us to understand and to, to believe God's Word. He helps us to trust in Christ. He helps us to know God's will, to, helps us to pray. To, he comforts us in our affliction. He gives us wisdom and boldness. He gives us gifts to minister to one another. He produces fruit in our character like love and joy and peace. And He gives us the power to change. Romans 8 says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. This is our betrothal gift given to us, seals the promise, and reminds us constantly that our Savior, our our husband, is coming back for us. And then finally, in Revelation 19.9, this is what we have to look forward to. It's the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a glorious celebration for all of those who are united to Christ. And I, as a pastor, I've gotten the chance to go and be a part of many weddings, and, and I've seen some pretty amazing receptions and banquets or wedding feasts. One in particular that I recall that, I mean, it was, they must have spent thousands. Uh, you got your invitation, and and there was a choice in what you wanted to eat, and it was like filet mignon and um, some kind of fancy chicken, and uh, I can't remember what else it, it was on there. Is uh, I think salmon or something like that, and I, I wanted to check like all three. They, they didn't let me do that. And I mean, you, you you go to the feast, and they've got server, servers coming around with these plates of hors d'oeuvres that are not like crackers and cheese, but like stuffed mushrooms and a rack of lamb. And, I mean, it's crazy how much money that they had to have in this. But here's the thing. Even the most expensive, extravagant banquet that we would come up with here on this earth pales in comparison to the party that we will experience when we go to heaven. Uh, they, they had a live band, but I mean, can you imagine that day when there won't be just a live band, there'll be a choir, a host of angels and heavenly beings that have one purpose in, for all of eternity, to sing and to worship the Lamb of God who is slain, who paid a ransom for us. And so this is why I want to take a look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is simply a description of our, the one that we're betrothed to. It's one of the most poetic descriptions in all of the Bible. And so I want to just take a few minutes to gaze upon the beauty of our Lord. This is a great reminder of why it is so wonderful for us to be married to Christ. And we talked about this in cross-training. I, I know... Sometimes you come into to worship on Sundays and you're singing the songs, but you recognize that, okay, I just, I, I'm struggling to believe this. Sometimes it's okay for you to come in and sing about the gospel and say, look, I want to believe this. I know that I'm not there, but I want to believe that. And so the same is true as we walk through this passage of scripture. You may look at this and it just, I mean, it just means these are just words on a piece of paper right now. But I would encourage you that even if your, your heart's not right right now, walk through this passage and say, okay, God, this is what I want to believe. Help me to believe that. If that's where you're at right now, that's okay. That is okay. Uh, there's a reason that you're here. And so 
Let's walk through this passage together. Uh, The context is that Paul has been praying for the church of Colossus. He ends his prayer with a thanksgiving, and then he breaks into praise. Listen to how he ends his prayer. This is actually starting in verse 13. Talking about Jesus, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And a reminder of, of that causes Paul to just break into worship. In fact, many commentators view this next section that we're going to take a look at as a hymn to Christ because it's so poetic. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so Paul's saying two things here. First, he's saying that, look, Jesus is the, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the perfect reflection of God. God has revealed himself in three primary ways. First of all, in just creation. We see his beauty, we see his glory, we see his creativity. As we look into the stars and we recognize that he has has named every one of the stars in the skies. He has made that sunset, that sunrise. And so we see his beauty in creation. We also see his character and his plan of redemption in the Bible, so specific revelation is given to us through the Word, but most significantly, He has revealed to Himself by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the visible express, expression or manifestation of God. In Christ, the invisible God becomes visible. And then the second assertion is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul is not saying that Jesus is a created being. Okay, the Jehovah's Witnesses look at this passage and that's what they believe. But if you look at the next passage, that's obviously not what he's saying. He's using this phrase figuratively to compare Jesus to a firstborn child. And back then especially, the firstborn child had a privileged relationship with the Father. And we see why in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, listen to this, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus is both our creator and our sustainer. Uh, Louis Giglio has got a great illustration for this, and he, uh, when I first heard this, I thought, what, what is he talking about? He says, Jesus is like laminin, okay? Uh, Jesus is like laminin. Now, I was like, well, okay, what in the world is laminin? And so he explains that, okay, and Giglio, he's a, he's a science nerd like me, and so he explained, okay, laminin is this, it's a cell adhesion protein molecule, okay? And so I want you to just back up for a second, can be, be amazed that the God of the universe that has named all of the trillions and trillions of stars in our universe also holds every one of your molecules, all of your cells together. And so, again, laminin is a, it's basically the glue that holds you together. Laminin tells your cells what to do and it holds your cells together so you don't just like fall apart. If you have a laminin deficiency, you're probably going to end up with something like muscular dystrophy. And so that's pretty cool, but okay, what's really cool about laminin is what it looks like. 
And so here's a diagram of laminin. It's made up of a couple of proteins that are wrapped together and it forms a cross shape. Uh, here, here's a picture of one through an electron microscope. Isn't that cool? That the God of the universe that can name every one of the stars seems to have put a stamp on every one of our cells and hold them together. That is amazing. Every breath we take is a reminder of God's love and provision. The fact that our skin holds together and clings to our body is because of Christ. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by him and for him. Not only that, look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. And so this is, again, a reminder that the church has many parts. We work together. And at the head of the church is Christ leading us, guiding us. A Christless church is a headless church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, he's not just the head of the church. He's also the head of redemption. His resurrection ushers in a whole new order of a, of a redeemed family. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so there is no peace. There is no reconciliation. There is no forgiveness apart from being united with Christ. Now I want you to look at verse 21. Because verse 21 describes what we bring to the marriage. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's what we bring to the marriage. We bring nothing good. We bring sin and guilt. We bring blindness and foolishness. And so in marriage... He absorbs all of our deficiency. He absorbs all of our debts. And look what he gives us in return. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, when you get married, everything that your spouse has now belongs to you. Maybe some of you went into marriage with some significant debt. And maybe your spouse had some money. Well, that was helpful for you, I'm sure. Because everything that you had, that they had, became yours. And everything that you had became, became theirs. So in this marriage with Christ, he takes on all of our debt, all of our sin. And what does he give us? He gives us his life, his righteousness, his holiness, his justification, his purity, his power. There, there's not a rags to riches story out there that I can think of that compares to what Christ does for us when we're united with him. I mean, maybe, maybe Cinderella comes close, but even Cinderella falls short because ultimately in Cinderella, you're rooting for Cinderella. You're rooting for the underdog. And Cinderella is such a good person. She's got so many good qualities that you almost feel like she deserves to marry the prince. But that's not us. We come with nothing good to the table. And yet Jesus gives us everything. It would do us well to gaze often 
at the beauty of the one that we're betrothed to. More than anything, this is what I want you to get today. That change is not simply the product of good theology or disciplined obedience. It is the result of an intimate relationship with Christ. Last week, really in 2 Peter, it was a warning about what happens when we forget that we're united to Christ. And so I want to spend these last few minutes encouraging you to think about how remembering your marriage to Christ can really just shape your life. This is how it can impact your everyday life. So for example, let's say you lose your job uh, or, or you're laid off for a season. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. In Christ, it doesn't have to wreck you because your identity and your security are not wrapped up in your job. Your identity and security are in Christ, the one who gives you all the resources you need for life and godliness. Your, your husband, Christ, controls every detail of your life. He was not surprised when you got laid off. And he has promised to care for you and provide for you. He controls it all. You can trust him. Maybe you haven't lost your job, but maybe you're just in a job that you hate. Some of you are there right now. Well, if you're married to Christ, you can still find contentment even in, the, in those situations because you're not looking for your fulfillment in your job. You've already found fulfillment in Christ. So even when things are discouraging or maybe they're just boring at work, you can always know that you have somebody that you can trust that is going to help you through the hard times. Your job may give you some dignity, but it does not define you. Or maybe some of you are just overwhelmed as a parent. I'll raise my hand on that one. Uh, if you've got kids, that's probably where you're at or where you will be very soon if you're not there already. Well, as an overwhelmed parent, I need to be reminded that in Christ, instead of living in discouragement or, or getting angry, I need to find strength and wisdom in Christ. And then I, I need to trust that, that Christ loves my kids infinitely more than I will ever love them. And he has promised to care for them. And he is willing and able to give me what I need to, to parent them well. That, that I need to be reminded that I'm not parenting alone. I am with Christ. Uh, maybe for you it's physical pain. Maybe you've got some chronic physical pain going on. You've been through a lot, through surgeries, through bloody noses in the middle of the, in the middle of the night, right? Hannah? Maybe you're dealing with chronic pain. All of us are going to deal with that at some point. Broken foot that doesn't seem to ever heal, right? But in Christ, yes, physical pain can make life difficult, but it cannot rob you from your identity. It cannot rob you from your meaning and your purpose in life. It cannot ultimately rob you of your, your ultimate joy or your ability to find rest in Christ. As Paul says, though outwardly we are, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And Paul knew physical pain. Not only that, being united to Christ doesn't, only, doesn't just help us with our trials, it also helps us when we experience success, helps us respond better. When success comes, when we're united to Christ, instead of becoming prideful, we become thankful. Because we remember that every 
thing that comes to us, every good thing that comes to us is only a result of his mercy and his grace, not because of our strength or our wisdom. And so here's my question for you as we head out. Has Christ captured your heart? Has he won your heart yet? I know for me it's easy to look at my relationship with Christ more like a business relationship than a love relationship. Often I find myself looking at our relationship more as a contract than a covenant. And so I would ask for your prayers that God would continue to move in my heart and I am sure that I am not alone, that we all need help being reminded of the intimate relationship that we have offered to us in Christ. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never actually been united to Christ at all. Um, you, you've never experienced his grace through faith. He's not put his spirit, not given you the betrothal gift of his Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin. And maybe today, for the first time, he's opening up your eyes to recognize your need for a Savior. I would love to celebrate with you if that's, if that's where you're at. Um, in a minute, we're going to pray and then we're going to take communion together and I would encourage you to, to join me in the back and I would love to pray with you. Maybe you need prayer for something else. I would love to spend some time praying with you and I pray that all of us would fall deeper in love with the one that, would, that has purchased us with his own blood. So let's pray together.